Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Blog Talk Radio. everyone. This is the August 15th, 2015 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard. This is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism is the philosophy that upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and I see a number of my usual listeners joining me here in the chat room. Welcome to everyone who's over here at the chat room at Blog Talk Radio. I see that Trevor is there and he says, hooray, I get to listen live for once. So welcome. I'm glad you're able to join in live. Rob Abiera, who has given me some awesome links this week. Thank you, Rob. Now, Rob, you didn't get to go to the Ted Cruz event in Oklahoma, right? It was too far from you? My sister actually went to one of the events out there in Oklahoma, and I gather she had a good time. Uh, just Jean in the chat room here sent me a good link about the Pope. Yeah, too bad, Rob, you didn't get to go. I heard that those cruise events did very well. So tonight I have this title that sort of loosely describes most of the stories that I want to talk about. It's government, media, and education controlling what goes in and comes out of your mind. So basically government, media, education, those entities have you coming and going with respect to your mind. Um, oh, OKC had about 500, says Rob, and then Tulsa had 2,000. Huh. Interesting. Okay. Well, I'll have to go back and look at some more of the reports out there. Um, so go to my blog at don'tletitgo.com and you can see the links to all the stories and everything that I want to discuss with you. If you're listening on the podcast, you can, of course, check out the program notes afterwards. Again, it's don'tletitgo.com. That is my blog. And at the top of the program notes, I just have a little link you can check out if you're interested. If you are a paleo-ish type eater, as I am, you might be interested in checking out Thrive Market. Thrive Market sells a whole lot of paleo diet friendly foods, non-perishable foods, mind you, because they're going to be shipped to you. But they sell them at a nice discount. 
And if you use that link there on my blog at don'tletitgo.com, you'll get 25% off of your first order. An interesting item to try that I'm looking forward to trying is something called avocado oil mayonnaise. So instead of being made with unhealthful soybean oil, soybean oil is everywhere in all your foods. Read your labels now. And I think I shared the link either last week. I know I shared it on social media on Facebook about how bad soybean oil actually is for you. Look it up. Fox News had a, a recent article. Anyway, you can avoid soybean oil in your mayonnaise. And I mean, have you seen this? If you go and it's uh, like Best Foods or whatever brand and it, they call it olive oil mayonnaise, all it is is it's with olive oil. It has some olive oil in it and the first ingredient is still soybean oil. So try to avoid that stuff if you can and good luck. But I think uh, avocado oil sounds just divine. So I'm looking forward to that. And you may end up wondering why more companies don't use these healthy choices. But yeah, check that out. Uh, but then the first story has to do with government controlling things that come out of your mind. And in other words, the kind of internet activities that you conduct and your email. We just got from New York Times today a new revelation from the cache of materials that Edward Snowden took and, and turned over to various you know, members of the press. The headline is AT&T helped U.S. spy on Internet on a vast scale. And as you read the article, they describe, you know, certain sort of data points about, oh, they will collect stuff between foreigners and then they'll sometimes it comes over AT&T's lines here in the United States and for some of them, they have to get FISA court orders, but of course, they don't have to have anything like probable cause and particular suspicion. Um, the gist of it is, is that you should assume that AT&T, if they've had access to your email, has been essentially turning this stuff over to the NSA. Uh, what I guess they often do is they will first, first do some sort of a keyword search on it before it gets turned over to the NSA. But, you know, there's all of this description of why these journalists believe it is AT&T that is the one who's in the partnership with the NSA and turning it over and um, the extent of the collection activities. We know the NSA has been on the premise of collect it all. And, you know, they believe in the third party doctrine. You know, again, there's this thing called the third party doctrine out there, which is that once you share your information with a company like AT&T, the Fourth Amendment does not apply to that information when that information is turned over to the government. You do not have to have a traditional type of warrant based on probable cause and particularized suspicion, all of the protection that you get from this is due to um, statute. You're at the mercy of all those legislators. Now, I had something weird just happen to me in the chat room. My little chat room is apparently refreshing or something. Can everyone hear me out there? Go ahead and type. If you can, type there in the chat room, and then hopefully I'm going to be able to see that you are reacting. I know some people are sitting here online in the studio, but
but I'm wondering. Okay, yeah, you guys can hear me. That's great. And I actually can see you typing in the chat room. So I don't know why I got disconnected from chat room only for a couple seconds there. I've got part of the messages in the chat room showing up in gray and some of it in, uh, in black here. So in any event, um, going back to the third party doctrine. Yeah, so the idea is that this doctrine has been governing all of this stuff in, in, in essence since the 70s. And since 9-11, the government has taken it upon itself to go ahead and push the bounds of that and allow themselves by statute to take more and more of this information up about us. So I don't know. I mean, when I come off of reading this article, I assume that insofar as my emails have been traveling over AT&T networks, they're likely to have been turned over to the government. It's um, really quite frightening. And how is it that AT&T came to be in a partnership with the federal government? I'm not exactly sure. But they say AT&T began turning over the emails and phone calls within days after warrantless surveillance began in October 2001. Um, there's another company in the so-called partnership that didn't start until February of 2002. Um, AT&T was the first partner to turn on a new collection capability that the NSA said amounted to a, quote, live presence on the global net. In the first months of operation, the so-called Fairview program forwarded to the agency 400 billion, with a B, internet metadata records. It includes who contacted whom and other details, but not what they said, and was forwarding more than 1 million emails a day to the keyword selection system at the agency's headquarters in Fort Meade, Maryland. Stormbrew was using some of it too, and it mostly processed foreign to foreign traffic. In 2011, the article says AT&T began handing over 1.1 billion domestic cell phone calling records per day to the NSA after, quote, a push to get this flow operational prior to the 10th anniversary of 9-11. Better start collecting more prior to the 10th anniversary of 9-11, right? That's any excuse to increase the surveillance state. Let's do more before the 10th anniversary of 9-11. I guess that's it. Um, the journalists say that this revelation is striking because after Mr. Snowden disclosed the program of collecting the records of Americans' phone calls, intelligence officials told reporters that for technical reasons, it consisted mostly of landline phone records. But obviously that was not true because it says 1.1 billion domestic cell phone calling records per day in 2011. So if you're an AT&T customer, your metadata has been handed over to the NSA since 2011. Makes you feel good. <laughs> Debbie in the chat room says, AT&T, let's commemorate a horrible attack on America by launching another one. And then just Jean says, wasn't AT&T broken up by the government back in its history? As I understand it, and I think they go over that history in this article here as well, uh, Ma Bell was the one that was broken up, and then AT&T was one of the entities that resulted from the breakup. So probably AT&T owes 
its very existence to government. And yes, that would make it very convenient. Uh, this is why also I am concerned when, for example, Facebook or other you know, uh, tech companies, those companies have a so-called consent decree, decree with the FTC. Right now, FTC, uh, excuse me, if Facebook is under a 20-year consent decree with the FTC, whereby the FTC is in control of Facebook's privacy policies. And that is scary um, because, again, those sorts of arrangements where Facebook really, you know, has to have the sign-off on the FTC over the next 20 years in order to be able to retake control of its own company, um, it makes it more likely to engage in so-called partnerships with the NSA. So, um, NSA apparently spent $188.9 million on the Fairview program, which is twice the amount that was spent on Stormbrew, which is the one that monitor the foreign communications. Um, people did try to sue when at first the warrantless wiretapping program was disclosed in December 2005. People tried to sue. Um, but then, as I understand it, Congress passed a law that legalized the program and therefore telecom companies couldn't be sued for their cooperation with it. Um, the other thing that's been going on when people try to sue as well is the government will say, oh, um, we can't really respond to this because, of course, there are, um, you know, government secrets, right, how, yeah, out there. And so how is it that we're able, you can actually sue us with this? Um, now, if you're going to target someone on American soil, this does require a court order under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Uh, but if a foreigner abroad is communicating with an American, the law permits the government to target the foreigner without a warrant. Uh, if foreigners are messaging other foreigners, then the law doesn't apply. That's okay. Um, but the foreign-to-foreign -foreign traffic, large amounts of the world's internet communications travel over American cables, so a whole ton of that. Now, for me, the foreign-to-foreign -foreign traffic is not as disturbing an issue as it is you know, them going after Americans here. Um, but anyway, they are processing 60 million foreign-to-foreign -foreign emails a day, processing, scanning in some way. So if you're a foreigner and, uh, you know, if you can actually know this, I don't know if you know whether your communications are traveling over American cables, you should be concerned. <sighs> AT&T says, we do not voluntarily provide information to any investigating authorities other than if a person's life is in danger and time is of the essence, end quote. Uh, but they don't elaborate about that. So you actually can't really know what AT&T is choosing to share with the government. And again, the Fourth Amendment does not apply to any of this information. You're sharing information with AT&T as a normal part of transacting business, you know, for either email service or internet service. Many people, you might be getting these in the mail all the time, asking you to sign up for AT&T's own internet service, whether or not it goes over internet cables and stuff. But many people use AT&T internet service 
on their cell phones. And that's either if AT&T is your cell phone provider or I believe AT&T does provide the internet connectivity when you go to Starbucks. People who are Starbucks uh, aficionados, you can tell me. Uh, Freedom Breeze in the chat room asks about Verizon and Google. We already know about Verizon, right? Verizon was the original company that we learned was handing over all of that telephone metadata to the government. That was the first big leak of Edward Snowden. But now we see that AT&T has been involved and it's been involved in turning over cell phone metadata and then also email metadata and more information from our emails based on so-called keyword searches. This article I find a bit vague as to exactly how, you know, how those are conducted and what exactly is turned over to the government according to what keywords and et cetera. Um, now, Fox in the chat room, I think you're a new uh, listener. Hello, welcome, or at least a new participant in chat. It says, given what the top court in the land has been doing lately, no lower court decisions should surprise us about what what the uh, what the courts are going to rule on this I'm actually somewhat optimistic that the Supreme Court when these bulk metadata collection cases come up to the court that they're going to do something to modify the third party doctrine I want to work on an, an amicus brief and put in front of them the idea that they could actually eliminate the third party doctrine and that our government could still perform all of its proper functions, including criminal and terrorism investigation, I have some ways that that could be done. I wrote an article. It was published in St. John's Law Review. So if you Google my name, Amy Peikoff, P as in Peter, E-I-K, like the word off, O-F-F, and St. John's Law Review and third-party doctrine, third-party doctrine, you will find my little missive out there and you'll get to see what my idea is about that. But I would love to see the court actually just get rid of that doctrine entirely. They won't uh, because the solution that I prescribe depends on our government actually respecting property and contract rights. So uh, Deborah, Deborah in the chat room, she says, even Sotomayor has said good things about this issue. Am I remembering correctly? Yes. The interesting thing, though, is so, so Sotomayor called the third party doctrine into question in that case, U.S. versus Jones. That was the one in 2012, I believe, uh, spring of 2012, that involved attaching a GPS device to a car and deemed that that was a search. Scalia wrote the majority opinion, and Sotomayor says, hey, Scalia, given what you say in this opinion, it seems like you might have some problems with some third-party doctrine cases. Maybe this is something that needs to be reconsidered. And people have really latched onto that, including me. And I remember that she went to one law school and was giving a talk and basically saying, well, don't get your hopes up too much. Uh, I don't know if anything could really happen. And she was basically trying to backtrack on that. So I don't know exactly where she stands now with it, but it would be great if she would be on board with many of the others in calling into question this doctrine. My guess is that when she realizes the uh, extent that individual rights would be upheld if we got rid of that doctrine, excuse me, I've got my laptop balancing precariously on this huge printout from the Atlantic. So I just made a nasty noise here. But um, 
anyway, I, you know, this is just the latest revelation from Snowden. It, in some ways, you are not that surprised because similar things have come out of Verizon and out of that so-called PRISM program. But to see AT&T be in a quote-unquote partnership with the NSA and to not really understand the extent of the turnover of information and just suspect that basically anything that you've ever sent over AT&T has somehow wound up in the hands of the government, that is pretty scary. Um, now, in the chat room here, Judy Knowlton, welcome, asks, doesn't it depend on how the Supreme Court sits? And I'm not sure exactly what you mean about how the Supreme Court sits. Um, yeah, Debbie says, yeah, the Atlantic article is huge. Yeah, it requires more than a five-minute attention span. Earlier today, Yaron Brook was chastising everyone today for having very short attention spans. And for some people, you know, it was funny. He was talking about listening to classical music that you should go and actually listen to, say, a concerto or a symphony and... Um, Oh, Judy Knowlton says it's constitutionally or militarily. Yeah, but let me go back to the attention span and then I'll get back there. I'm, I'm, I'm demonstrating the short attention span, right? I'm going from post to post here in the chat room. But, um, you know, he was saying if you listen to classical music and really listen to it and focus on it throughout the piece, you will be, in effect, cultivating and improving your attention span. And this is something that you can do. Of course, you can also do Brain HQ which I've talked up in the past, and that can help you with your attention span. Now, Judy's uh, asking if it's a, a constitutional or military. Um, they're going to probably look at it from a constitutional perspective. I'm not sure why they would challenge it from a military perspective unless you say that they're going to take it in terms of, well, we throw out the Fourth Amendment because we're at war, but we haven't declared war. And I don't know that that sort of argument that there's this military necessity to continue violating the rights of American citizens here. I, I just don't think that that's going to fly anymore. And why can't you have some modicum of particularized suspicion about anybody that you're investigating? Is any of this data any good? You know, they're just collecting all this bulk stuff without any probable cause or particularized suspicion. Not sure. Um, interesting. I didn't write that, she says. Okay, I'll have to, if, if that wasn't the question, if you want to clarify, then I'll try to do my best to answer it. But I think they're going to be looking at it from a constitutional perspective, a Fourth Amendment perspective, and basically ask the question, is the application of the third-party doctrine to these types of materials consistent with the Fourth Amendment? Since the 1970s, they've been inclining to say yes, and I'm hoping they're going to do a big reversal. Oh, is it going to sit behind the gold fringe flag or the flag with no gold fringe? Now, see, these are kind of uh, elements of conspiracy theory stuff that I am not familiar with. I can't tell you that they have any relevance or no relevance or any of these things. If you want, Judy, to put a link in the chat room here as to where people could go if they're interested 
in figuring out what it means if there's a gold fringe flag or a flag with no fringe or whatever. You know, I, I read those books years ago. Well, not those books. I read one book year ago, years ago along these lines, which was how you can get out of paying your income taxes. And one of the things you were supposed to do is you're never supposed to put a zip code on your letter because if you put a zip code, then you were submitting yourself to the jurisdiction of the blah, blah, blah. Okay, Title IV USC. Okay. Um, so how they sit is going to affect the outcome of the case. I haven't seen that come up explicitly in anything. So I guess your idea is that they're doing it, although they're not stating it in the actual opinions. Um, that will be interesting to see. And if it would have any effect, I don't know that it would. But we can speculate about that too an, uh, on another day. Check all that out. Uh, what I do know is here we have just more evidence that the government is controlling the output of your mind, namely the output of your mind as it trans, you know, uh, kind of just goes over the internet, travels over the internet. And it could be in the form of email. It could be also in the form of traveling over the cellular networks via your cell phone. But these are things that you say, things that you write are being swooped up by AT&T and turned over to the NSA. And the knowledge that this is being done is definitely going to affect Americans' thinking. I don't know how many times I go around every day, you half joke, but okay, the NSA listening to this, watching this, doing this, doing that. I've read my 1984 as much as anybody and I know it and I have the sense of what that would be like. And in fact, you know, I don't know, a vast number of my communications. I do wish they would listen to my show so I could tell them that what they're doing is entirely wrong and that the third party doctrine applying to business records of innocent people is completely wrong and it should be abolished and it shall be under the Fourth Amendment so that they're all breaking the law. But instead, they treat us all like lawbreakers and we start to think of ourselves always as potential lawbreakers potentially getting in trouble based on what we say what we do and who knows when your keyword right what what i mean i might have some of the keywords in my email but it's going to be in a completely different context than somebody who's a criminal or a terrorist would have it in their email because i speak out against you know jihadists who are committing terrorist acts i don't spend as much time talking about just normal crimes because normal crimes, I don't find that there's anything really so much philosophically useful that we can say about them. But when you've got jihadists that's motivated by an ideology, this is something that I would be prone to talk about in email or cell phone calls and stuff. And if they're filtering, my stuff's getting turned over to the NSA, right? How do you think? What do you think about that? Um, Rob asked if I have a link to my paper on my blog. I, I've got, you know, there is a piece on PJ Media where I do a condensed version of the article. So I can go ahead and, and post that link out there. People can follow me on either Facebook. You can go to the Don't Let It Go Unheard page on Facebook or follow me on Twitter at Amy Peacock, and I'll get that link back out to everyone again. But that was something I posted back in PJ Media a while ago. I really think the Supreme Court needs to at least hear that argument. And if we can move in the direction of a proper understanding of the Fourth Amendment, it would be great. So that is 
stuff coming out of your brain and government seizing it, taking control over it. And then let me ask you guys, what is the effect on you? You know that government is listening to your communications, reading your communications, or at least those communications are being filtered through computers, programmed to look for keywords by government. No doubt some of your communications have ended up kind of caught in this surveillance net. John in the chat room says, the event is a sense of helplessness. Yeah, jihad might be one of the keywords. Uh, the keyword could be uh, knife or any kind of weapons that people would use. I mean, there's, um, yeah, or they could be talking about 9-11, whatever. Freedom Breeze says everyone changes their behavior, however, slightly when they suspect they may be on surveillance. You know, it was interesting. One of the articles that I linked to today, again, go to don'tletitgo.com for the program notes. One of the articles I linked to is from New York Times, and it's a woman talking about reporting all of the rape that is committed by ISIS and other jihadists in the Middle East. And at the very end of it, they talk to her about, well, don't you get threats and everything else? And she says, yeah, I get threats. She says, but it doesn't affect what I do. And you I mean, you can tell yourself and you could say, okay, I resolve that even though I have some fear, for example, of AT&T turning my emails over to the NSA and then the NSA takes them and they try to use that information to do something against me. It may be something, you know, obvious to us, like they give it to the IRS and the IRS targets all of us people who don't like Obama or whatever the things are, right? Um, there could be various consequences. So you could tell yourself, okay, um, you know, I have these consequences in mind and I know that those might happen to me, but I resolve not to let it affect me. I'm going to continue doing my show, talking to all of you. I mean, this is the thing, as I was talking about these consequences that might be visited on me just 10, 15 seconds ago, my mind blanked for a couple seconds. I actually experienced it. Now, you could say, Amy, it's late on a Saturday night and so you were just tired. But I could also say that the fact that I was trying to describe to you and concretize the kind of things that could happen to me because I am conveying, you know, messages that could be seen as anti whoever's in power right now in their philosophy and that something could happen and I'm going to be concrete about, you know, what it is that will affect my thinking to at least some small extent. And even if I'm the strongest person in the world and I can keep you know, fighting against that and continuing to go out there and try to speak the truth, it's, I think it does. I think it, it's going to affect you. You know, this woman says it doesn't affect my reporting. Well, I mean, it may not end up affecting the end result of her reporting, but it may take her a little bit more effort and energy and wear her down just a little bit more to turn out the same type of reporting on the same issue. Robert in the chat room says, those who fight for the future. Yeah, if you fight for the future, you live in it today. Um, yeah, responsive defiance is still a response, says Debbie. You cannot avoid, she says, you cannot avoid being affected by the knowledge that thugs with guns are monitoring one's thoughts, right? And we don't know 
Right. Remember, there was, I actually wrote a little blog post on this a while ago when they had Attack Watch. Attack Watch was that site where you were supposed to rat on anybody who was supposedly spreading inaccuracies about Barack Obama, but basically it would be used to refer to anyone who was criticizing Barack Obama. And, you know, anybody who saw your anti-Obama posts on social media could go to Attack Watch and say, you know, oh, Amy Peikoff, she was saying some mean things about Obama and then put, you know, information about me on Attack Watch. And it, I, I took, you know, you people, anybody you can think about yourself reacting to that as an example of the point that Ayn Rand made which is that force stops thinking. And, you know, again, introspect for yourself. Like I told you just a little while ago when I was explaining the concrete things that might happen when AT&T turns it over to the NSA and so on, that I experienced a tiny bit of brain fog and losing my train of thought. Again, you could say, oh, well, Amy, you lose your train of thought all the time. But I don't know. I, I think that there's a good case to be made. So I would Ask all of you, do your own little mental thought experiments and see whether you think it does affect you in your daily life. We've been living with the Snowden revelations for a couple of years now. And when you go about your business, don't you speak just a little bit more carefully on your cell phones? Um, you know, maybe you don't put subject lines in your emails anymore, right? Because that's metadata. That could be fun. Um, Oh, flag at whitehouse.gov. Yeah, that was a good one. Um, yeah, it, inhibit, it inhibits free speech. Uh, Debbie says, I had fun with that one. I told those mother flaggers to go flag themselves. <laughs> it's perfect. I mean, this is the proper response, right? Defiance, not obedience, is the response that Americans have when they are facing overbearing authority. And the surveillance state is certainly overbearing authority. By the way, I was just paraphrasing Ayn Rand, that wasn't me being brilliant. That was me semi-well paraphrasing Ayn Rand, who was brilliant. But um, yeah, this is what we do. We defy. So controlling what comes out of your mind and therefore controlling what is in your mind and what your mind is capable of doing to at least some extent. That is what the NSA is doing with these various programs. And this is just the latest horrific revelation. There's been a whole, you know, catalog of them that you can review at your horror, so to speak. Um, random story, not, I mean, sort of just in the sense that there is a party line that is being conveyed to you. 150 days. Treasury says debt has been frozen at, I guess this is 18 trillion. I can't read this. Uh, yeah, it is. It's 18, but it's 18 trillion, 112 billion, 975 million dollars. So this has been happening for 150 days. That was as of August 12th. I don't know if they've unfrozen it since then. I guess this sort of depends on what Congress is going to do. But First of all, how can the debt be frozen? Well, you learn if you read the article, this is cnsnews.com, that basically they've frozen it at a number that is about 25 million below the current legal debt limit of 
18 trillion, 113 billion and some odd change, where the some odd change is something that I could easily live on for a year. Um, Debt subject to limit is what they call it. So there is debt that's subject to a legal limit. And then there is other debt that is not subject to a limit. And of course, that has continued to grow. And so this is why we can maintain this sort of fiction. There's certain debt now. You know, when now when debt was becoming inconvenient, people started tracking it and looking at it. Ken Gardner out there on Twitter occasionally will tweet out, you know, how many dollars each of us as a taxpayer would have to pay in order to pay off this debt. And I think it's probably in the range of $60,000 at least. But, you know, people started tracking this and keep, and now what do they have? They say, okay, well, there's a certain amount of the debt that is subject to a legal limit. And then there's other parts that we just excuse it entirely. So I would say this is entirely meaningless. Some people say that even if you put it all in one category, it would be meaningless as well, that it doesn't really constitute actual debt. It's just high in the sky. Uh, just Jean asks, is it really frozen or are they just reporting it as frozen? It could be just reporting it as frozen. One thing that I saw in the article was that they were saying in effect that they weren't issuing any more bonds. Um, <laughs> so it says what they're doing uh, right now is they are using, quote, extraordinary measures to keep the debt from exceeding the limit. What are these extraordinary measures? Just not issuing bonds, I guess only doing the, um, you know, what it, What do they do? The other thing too is, y- did you see that other article? I did share it out on social media, but I didn't put it in the program notes. Fox News had reported that the amount collected in income tax this year is unprecedented, that it set all new records. So it could be because they are fleecing us to a much greater extent than they normally do that they've been able to keep this in uh, in check. Just Jean says the debt clock is still marching along with great vigor. Well, what is the debt clock saying? Let's compare what the debt clock currently says to this. That would be interesting. Um, I'm getting distracted by different colored fonts here in the chat room here. Not awesome, is it? Um, But, you know, here it is basically, there's this whole fiction about, oh, the debt is this and the debt is that, and oh, we're holding back and we're not telling you what the debt is. It's all a fiction. And we're supposed to accept and absorb these categories of debt that's subject to a legal limit and debt that's not subject to a legal limit. And media just keeps reporting this and we're supposed to all take it in and think it's awesome and wonderful. Um, and, I, and I say no. Uh, we're going to return to this idea of government and media and education, controlling what goes in and out of your brain in a bit. But we have a number of stories that I think are worth talking about this week. One of them is the one that I just mentioned, uh, the New York Times piece on kidnapping and sex slavery, covering ISIS religious justification for rape. And it is an interview with a woman who has basically been covering all of these stories of rape. Uh, the Islamic State rape, enslaving and raping 
uh, Yazidi and other women and girls. Um, and as I said, what is what does she you know describe at the end that yeah she does get threats when she covers stories on ISIS, but she says she doesn't take them seriously, and she also um, doesn't think that it affects her reporting. Um, she says there's been an occasional threat against me by Islamic State fighters, just as there are against any reporter who covers the subject. I don't believe any are serious, and they do not affect the way I do my reporting. Again, I'm, I'm sure that it does uh, affect just a little bit, but she talks about, you know, going and, and talking about the girls, you know, and the experiences that they have and how she is very sensitive to the feelings of the girls that she won't persist with an interview if it's too traumatic for them and, and things like that. Um, she talks about one interview with a young woman who had been interviewed multiple times by other reporters and she ended up stopping the interview because she learned that she had that woman had been pressured into uh, into speaking with her. So um, how difficult it is to do this. There was an article earlier this week about Ayan, uh, by Ayan Hirsi uh, saying that ISIS, in effect, promoted an ideology that supported rape. There's also been an article about an American uh, captive that was the sex slave of an ISIS leader over there as well. That's been revealed by her family. Um, how anybody can survive and... Um, you know, go on and, and get past anything like that. I don't, I don't know. But ISIS sanctions the rape of women and girls as part of their ideology. And it's, it's about as horrific as it gets. Yeah. Uh, Kayla Mueller, pig fan, uh, gives her name here in the chat room that she was captured repeatedly raped as a sex slave by a leader in ISIS. This is horrible. Um, we, we, should, we should go on to something a little bit lighter, namely some politics about Hillary Clinton here in a second. If people want to call in and talk about any of the topics that I've got there on the agenda today, 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. Do make sure if you want to chime in that you hit the one button there in the chat room. In terms of what our future is going to be like, people are looking at the 2016 election already, even though it's fairly early. And New York Times put this story out there. Is Hillary Clinton really in danger of losing the primary? And the upshot, they say, no, not really. Insofar as Bernie Sanders seems to be having all this success out there on the campaign trail, Still, he's really not in shooting range of Hillary Clinton. And that what you have to think about, too, is that, you know, is Hillary Clinton's so-called prosecution for her email going, excuse me, going to amount to anything much? And the New York Times in this article, at least, doesn't seem to discuss it very much. There's been quite a bit of coverage of it in some of the right-wing media and it's gotten to the extent that she turns over a server, but the server's already been professionally wiped. And then they're also getting email from her aides and how much did she share that was classified in ways that she shouldn't have. And many people are convinced, and I would tend to agree, that if any of us 
had done the things that Hillary Clinton had done, illegal things with your email, that we would all be in prison right now. We would not be certainly out there running for president. But nonetheless, Hillary Clinton is oblivious. Uh, I saw one headline and I didn't actually click it and people can tell me if this is true. Someone was saying that there may end up being an early debate among Democrat candidates for president 2016 and Hillary wouldn't even partake, I guess, because she doesn't want to be asked about this stuff. Interesting. Um, the Judy Knowlton show wonders if someone is a BTR admin in disguise herself. I don't know. I'm wondering if the Judy Knowlton show in my chat room here is conducting a conversation with herself. Not sure. Um, now, oh, uh, Trevor says, I wish they would let her be until she's the candidate and then let her have it. What I kind of wonder right now, because it's the FBI who's conducting this criminal investigation. I'm wondering if they want to do it now, right? Because they want to pretend that they've done something and then say, oh my gosh, well, we found nothing. And then everything works well. Uh, Pig Van says, perhaps when Biden jumps in, he splits the vote with Hillary and Sanders wins the nomination. That could be. If Sanders actually won, what would you do if Sanders won as president? I don't know. Today at the Iowa State Fair, she says she did not receive or send any classified information, right? But there was something else. There was another part of that statement. It was like, I did not send or receive any classified information from my one such and such email address. I forget what it was. There was a qualification to that statement. And then, of course, there's classified and then there's top secret. And some of them were saying that top secret was involved. Um, okay. I'm not sure what we've got here. I've got a private conversation going here in the chat room or something. Let me see. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, both are socialists, she says, but only one admits it. I guess that's fine um, between Sanders and Obama, but I'm not getting why I'm getting all these loudspeaker icons and stuff. It's just kind of distracting in the color too. I think everybody who's in the chat room, if you could just stick with one font color, that would be nice because whenever I see something red, it's like, oh my gosh, you must pay attention to me now. Um, what happens when the dollar collapses this year, M. Gerber in the chat room says, and the elections get canceled and Obama becomes a dictator and declares martial law. There are so many scenarios under which Obama could decide that he needs to become a dictator and declare martial law. Some of them is that he's probably letting too many potential jihadists into our country. And so then we have all these attacks and he has to declare martial law. Um, Debbie doesn't think it's going to happen. He would if he could, but he can't. I, I sure hope that he can't. I don't know what he plans to do after his presidency is over. I think he's going to be quite at a loss. He's going to have to go out there and try to make himself feel important in, in some way. Who knows? Um, but anyway, New York Times. New York Times thinks that the email investigation is not going to come to very much. There's many of us who agree with that. And I could see 
you know, there's Obama's FBI out there. They're going to say, hey, we really investigated. We did our best. We couldn't really find anything. We're going to clear her in plenty of time to make sure she could be confirmed as the nominee as she's supposed to be able to do. That would be my prediction. So this is the first of our little obligatory election stories that we've got to discuss. I've got a phone call here I'm going to take. Hi, who's this? Hello, you're on the air. I can't hear anything. Okay, well, I'm going to go ahead and put it on hold again, and I could try again in a minute, maybe get the audio back together. Nobody else heard anything either, right? No? Interesting, crazy times ahead, says M. Gerber. <sighs> His term can't end under the penalty of being discovered. I, yeah, we're, we're going to have to see what happens, right? Um, there's, I wonder what they're going to find out about what happened during his presidency. I mean, what about Benghazi? I just saw a very damning video the other day about Benghazi. It was Trey Gowdy um, asking all these questions of the press about what happened around and during the night of Benghazi and asking the press, do you know the answer to this question? Do you know the answer to this question? And, they're ba and he's basically saying to them, if you don't know the answer to this question, you have not done your job. And there were a million important questions, you know, such as, you know, why was uh, Chris Stevens and the others in Benghazi? Um, why were his requests for additional security denied? Why wasn't additional support sent? All the questions that any decent, competent press should get answered about what happened when these four Americans were killed. And the one was just brutally, as far as we could tell, tortured and raped and killed. Why was our government not doing its job? Um, there's so much that could be found out, but I'm not sure if we're going to get to find them out. If you need a little bit of comic relief during your election cycle, you can always go to Donald Trump. And Bosch Boston sent me a an article that's got the 199 most Donald Trump things that Donald Trump has ever said. Donald Trump, of course, is getting quite a reputation out there on the campaign trail. But, you know, just to give you sort of a smattering of these 199 uh, things, how about this one? I have a great relation. This is Trump speaking. He says, I have a great relationship with the blacks. I've always had a great, a great relationship with the blacks. That's nice. I know what sells and I know what people want. Um, he says, a well-educated black has a tremendous advantage over a well-educated white in terms of the job market. If I were starting off today, I would love to be a well-educated black because I believe they do have an actual advantage. Um, he says, our great African-American president hasn't exactly had a positive impact on the thugs who are so happily and openly destroying Baltimore. He says, I have black guys counting my money. I hate it. The only guys I want counting my money are short guys that wear yarmulkes all day. The concept of global warming was created by and for the Chinese in order to make U.S. manufacturing non-competitive. Some of the stuff that he said about women is particularly troublesome. Um, 
Listen to this, and if you are a female, listen and you tell me how you feel when you hear this from Donald Trump. This is what he says. He says, I cherish women. I want to help women. I'm going to be able to do things for women that no other candidate would be able to do. He says, I will be so good to women. Ha, ha, ha. He says, I will be phenomenal to the women. I mean, I want to help women. Then let's hear what he thinks of women actually. So all those quotes that I just read you about how he's going to be so great to women, these are all from August of 2015. Let's listen to Trump speak about women in 2008 in his book, Think Big, Make It Happen in Business and Life. He says, quote, oftentimes when I was sleeping with one of the top women in the world, I would say to myself, thinking about me as a boy from Queens, can you believe what I am getting? Number 24, he says, I've never had any trouble in bed. That was back in 1990. He says, I have many women that work for me. <sighs> and then he talks about one woman. He says, uh, she's not giving me 100%. She's giving me 84% and 16% is going towards taking care of children. Now he's in 2004 talking about The Apprentice. He says, all of the women on The Apprentice flirted with me consciously or unconsciously. That's to be expected. He says, I have really given a lot of women great opportunity. Unfortunately, after they are a star, the fun is over for me. That's back in 1994. He says, when a man leaves a woman, especially when it was perceived that he has left for a piece of ass, a good one, there are 50% of the population who will love the woman who has left. Oh, and then this is kind of a interesting, um, he talks about his daughter Ivanka. Um, she's one of the great beauties of the world, according to everybody, etc. Another quote, every guy in the country wants to go out with my daughter. And then again, he's talking about her daughter in this one. She does have a very nice figure. I've said if Ivanka weren't my daughter, perhaps I'd be dating her. Yeah. Interesting. Um, he says, there's nothing more I, uh, I love more than women, but they're really a lot different than portrayed. They are far more than men, far more aggressive. If Hillary Clinton can't satisfy her husband, then what makes her think she can satisfy America? Oh, my gosh. Anyway, yeah, he's, he's going to do great things for women because you could tell exactly that he's got this really, really high regard for them. So we did lose that one caller. If that one caller wants to go ahead and try back again and then again hit the one, I would go ahead and, and pick up that call. But those are that's Donald Trump. Now, what do you make about this line of thinking that's been going out there that you shouldn't criticize Trump, you shouldn't criticize Trump supporters because they are, after all, needed in order to win the Republican nomination so that if any candidate either criticizes Trump or Trump supporters, then that's bad for them. Just Jean said, great, all this is what I really care about in a president. Yeah, a lot of a lot of it. And, you know, you can go read all 199 of those glorious Donald Trumpisms. He is still in lead after the debates and after all these things are out there. The actual, the poll, the poll that I have here is August 10th. 
And that is a couple days after at least some of those statements that I was reading you there about women and what he's going to do for women. But according to the latest NBC News online poll that was conducted by SurveyMonkey, Trump is still at the top of the list of the GOP candidates. Uh, He comes in with 23%. But then the big surprise is post-debate, in which he was shut out for the middle 44 minutes, Senator Ted Cruz comes next at 13%. So I think that's great. Oh, just Jean said she did read all 199 of those. That's awesome. Um, Trump or Hillary, either way, women are going to get screwed, says Trevor. Oh, bad joke. Very bad. Does he want to be president or pimp? You know, it's always interesting when people are talking about their kids, you know, and how good looking and you know they're going to be either lady or man killers or whatever and you do it's like are you, are you pimping your kid out I don't, I don't know what he's doing yeah Cruz got up to second in the poll and I hear his fundraising is going really well that his travel through all the southern states has gone really well so that is the optimistic thing that the question really is I, I really believe that Cruz could possibly get the nomination. It is quite possible, I think, for him to get the nomination. And then the question is, could he win? That would be incredible. Bill in the chat room says, let's go through all the Ted Cruz religious quotes now. You know, I think we're not even going to have to because I think um, I predict that in future debates, they will give Ted Cruz more time, but they're going to try to orchestrate it. So he is asked only the questions that will bring out the most religious and therefore most objectionable to your average American stuff. Um, it's it's stuff that, you know, the, the so-called base of the, the conservative base of the party will really like. But people like me who would tend to support him, even though I'm an atheist, would start sort of questioning that after hearing maybe the fifth answer about social issues during one debate from Ted Cruz. It will probably make me cringe. So I don't know that we actually need, I I know it's there. I know we're going to have our faces rubbed in it in uh, future debates. Hi, you're on the air. Is this Debbie? Hi, Amy. It's Debbie. Hi. So Ted Cruz, you said, yay, Cruz. What do you say to Bill here? Because Bill says, let's go through all the Ted Cruz religious quotes now. Yeah, I know. I, I've known from the beginning. I mean, ever since I heard of him, I've known that he has, he is very religious. And that's just how it is. I, If there were someone out there like you or Jerome Brooke or Bosch or, uh, you know, I mean, there, if there were someone out there running who, who were more fully aligned with my values, I would be supporting that person in but you know Ted Cruz comes the closest to yeah I mean there's there's some kind of a fine balance of saying okay who is it who potentially has a shot of actually winning the nomination and the election and isn't completely impalatable um, but Ted Cruz is much better than that I mean there's a lot of very good things about Ted Cruz regardless of the things that I disagree with but no, you know, the context is definitely that we are choosing from among a certain, you know, slate of candidates that has at least a realistic shot of winning. But it, you know, it is really true. You know, this slate of candidates on the in the Republican Party and 
you know, maybe even some of the Democrats are going to bring this up too. The religion, the religious aspect of this slate of candidates in the 21st century is alarming. It really is. And um, I sure wish that they didn't have that uh, component to them, but they all do. And the only alternative is to vote for someone like Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders. And I think we can probably all agree that that would be far more harmful to us and strategically that it would not help us to advance an agenda that is freedom-oriented. No. Voting for someone like Ted Cruz. Now, if Rick Santorum were to end up on the ballot, then that would be... (sighs) Yeah. If he's religious, if he's a rabbit collectivist, and if you watched that JV debate a couple weeks ago, it was like something out of Anthem. He didn't ever refer to himself as I. He kept saying we. Like they asked him, why are you so, you know, about the fact that he's in a really bad position in the polls right now? And he says, well, we were in a worse position last year. We, we, we. And it hmm. wouldn't even refer to himself except as we. And I found that pretty interesting. I don't, I don't want to go into a digression about that, but... Um, as far as religious people are concerned, on the GOP side, Cruz is not that bad. And you're probably right that they're going to ask him a lot of questions that, that kind of um, try to exaggerate his religious, uh, put emphasis on the religious side of, of him. Because right, and, the, and that, that's what Megyn Kelly did towards the end of the last debate. But I'm just, I'm anticipating even more of that. And you're yeah. probably right, um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I think that it's really terrible that they're going to do that, and it reflects the fact that they know that most Americans, or at least the majority or the plurality of Americans, are put off by that, which is a good sign. And I just right. hope that they don't they don't pigeonhole him too much as a religious candidate, because I think that, yeah, he's religious, but he's got a lot of... Um, really agenda items that he's really passionate about that are secular in nature and that he could do a lot of good. And I think that if he gets the nomination, he has a very good chance of winning, the same way that Reagan won um, by a significant amount. Right, right. No, and I, I think if he can continue to build momentum then I think he can build momentum across party lines, but I'm not sure. The question is, too, will Trump exit and then endorse? And there's all that to talk about, too. Uh, you know, on the kind of axis of our government flirting with religion way too much for our tastes, how about the Pope being invited to address Congress by Boehner? Oh, man. You know what? I hadn't heard about that until you said it this now and that is really disgusting because the Pope is, he's like a throwback to the Middle Ages this Pope Francis he is very bad Um, I haven't heard him say anything that I didn't really get chilled Um, he's an evil person and that Boehner would invite him to address Congress I, I didn't think it was possible but I actually have a lower opinion of Boehner now than I did a few minutes ago 
Apparently, this is the first time that a Pope has been invited to do this. The address has not happened yet, so of course, once it does, we're going to have to report it to you here. But what you can anticipate from this, and by the way, thanks to Jean for sharing this on the Don't Let It Go on Her page on, on Facebook. She's the one who shared this article with me. It's from the Associated Press, and I guess it's in the next month that he's going to be coming but this is how the AP describes it. Quote, the Pope thrills Democrats with his teachings on climate change, social justice, and immigration. At the same time, his message on life and the Catholic Church's traditional opposition to abortion comfort Republicans. Oh, so he's the, he's the worst of all worlds, this guy. This guy he's is the worst of all everybody. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, he's the worst of all worlds. He's, he's like, he's got bipartisan appeal, right? <laughs> yep, yep. L- listen to this. I've been, this is a quote from a liberal Massachusetts Democrat, Jim McGovern. He says, I've been waiting for this Pope all my life. I find him inspirational, and I know a lot of other people do, not just Catholics. He is going to basically come in there, and he'll end up challenging anybody who purports to be religious and a Republican who wants to hold out, you know, for instance, on funding Obamacare, on increasing the national debt so that we can continue all of these entitlement programs, et cetera. It really is true that, yes, I mean, you you can try to combine your religiosity with a respect for individualism and individual rights in, you know, as conceived in the American founding, you can try to do it, but there is an irreconcilable tension there, and I, it's going to be hard for some of these lawmakers to, you know, explain to someone like the Pope, how could you dare say that you're Christian or Catholic or anything else, and deny all of these things that are necessary to preserve the climate, social justice, uh, how can you deny you know, uh, amnesty to all of these people. And it, it's it's going to be very interesting to see how they react. I mean, in a way, you could see Boehner doing this. You know, you accuse me of selling out, but really, I'm just doing the right thing, and the Pope here will back me up, right? Yeah, like John Kasich, he made a very religious argument to justify his adoption of the Medicaid expansion. Mm-hmm. From Obamacare, and um, yeah, they they all say that they're. How can you justify? How can you found a, a, a base? Where's your basis for morality outside of religion, and what's your basis for rights outside of religion? And 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 the folks gonna, you know, that's their chicken coming home to roost. Most definitely. Earlier in the chat room, someone was talking about the fact that Kasich is also improving in the polls. And not surprisingly, and I just tweeted this out the other day, the New York Times has spoken favorably of Kasich. So leave it to the New York Times to pick the most altruistic of the GOP candidates. And I don't know if they've officially endorsed him, but they have been speaking favorably of Kasich. Mm -hmm. Well, that doesn't surprise me because he's most similar to a Democrat. 
Yeah, Pig Fan says Fox News also likes him. And remember, what's the big deal about the Medicaid expansion? The big deal about the Medicaid expansion is that it is the part of Obamacare that immediately shoves tons of people into a single payer program, namely, you know, namely the government is just paying for everyone's care when you're on Medicaid. So it is the basically entrenchment of Obamacare. It's going to be really hard for any new president, even a Ted Cruz, to repeal and walk all of that back, all of that Medicaid expansion back. And suppose you don't. Suppose you allow that Medicaid expansion to exist and then get rid of the rest of everything else. You know, you feel like, oh, we can't take it away once we've put all these people on Medicaid. How is that sustainable? And, you know, that was the whole reason for Obamacare in the first place, because we had been giving so-called free health care to so many Americans already that what Obama was trying to do is get everybody into the so-called insurance pool, make us all pay higher premiums in order to subsidize all that free health care that's been being given away. And, of course, give away more so-called free health care. So I it's it is evil that Medicaid expansion and it was left to the discretion of the individual governors. Kasich, a Republican governor was an early eager adopter. And of course he's very self-congratulatory about it. <sighs> yeah. Oh yeah. Wow. Kasich justifies the extension says pig fan by saying, uh, when I get to the pearly gates, I'm going to have an answer for what I've done for the poor. Great. Yeah, that's what it was. It was just, you know, St. Peter's not going to really care what I've done to advance freedom. He's going to care what I've done to help the poor. So, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And this is yeah. this is what they're what they're all going to have to answer. Uh, Debbie, I've got a couple other calls. Any last words before I go and take them? Uh, no, that's it. Okay. Well, thanks for calling and for listening, and um, I'll talk to you soon. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and grab another call here. Hi, is this John? Yeah, hi, uh, Amy. How are you? Oh, okay, so Can this is me? John. Yeah, okay, so I thought I had yeah. clicked a different yeah. one, but... Oh, yeah, no, no, I did. I got it right. I got it right. Yes, so welcome. How are you? Yeah, good. Uh, John Kenny here. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I just want to tell you, I uh, talked to Ted Cruz today. Oh, nice. Yeah, there was a meet and greet down the road, uh, different candidates, Carly Fiorina and Ben Carson and, uh, and Ted Cruz. I, uh, he, um, I managed to shake his hand. I looked him right in the eye and said, thanks for quoting Ayn Rand on the Senate floor. I said, I hope you'll be doing it again in the future. He says, absolutely. Okay. And, and I said, look, you know, it's really important to get the philosophical underpinnings of capitalism to emphasize that, bring it out in the debates and everything. He said, absolutely. He says, uh, I can't wait to get back to the founding principles and debate Hillary on that silly uh, income inequality issue. Okay. Yes. So I was looking straight at him, shook his hand, and then I gave him a copy of Peter Schwartz's new book. Mm, nice. One, uh, in defense in of selfishness, right? Mm -hmm. Selfishness, yep. Took it out of the bag, gave it to him, and he gave it to his assistant. He looked at it and said, great. And I said, look, this gives you the, you know, 
philosophical basis, you know, it critiques altruism, contrasts it with individualism, shows you what the political consequences are of altruism. And he, he not he says, yeah, I know. Uh, well, he, he understood the concepts. Okay. Right. Yes. So as of today, he's got Peter Schwartz's book. Isn't that good news? I, I like that. And then what I'm looking forward to is getting the new book that's coming out by Yaron Brook and Don Watkins on inequality. Get that in his hands as well. And yeah, I, yeah. I'd, I'd like to, you know, question him a bit in an interview. I would love to have that opportunity because I'd like to prod him a little bit on his invocation of John Rawls as a rhetorical um, device, you know, try to talk him out of doing stuff like that as he gets further down the process, because he really is going to have to answer the you didn't build that. And I think yeah. to do that effectively, he's going to have to renounce Rawls entirely. He's not going to be able to use him as a rhetorical device as, as he has. But that is great. Um, it's, it's nice to remind him that there are people who are enthusiastic about him because of his mentioning of Atlas Shrugged in particular yep. and not about the fact that he announces candidacy at Liberty University and that he, um, you know, he has, he has this personal background about religion, which I understand. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Like I said, in the next several debates, I am anticipating doing an, a, quite a bit of cringing. We're going to have to see. Yeah. Well, everybody's a mixed bag in that, uh, in that crowd. Right. And I said, Hey, look, uh, you know, I told Ted, Hey, look, I got about 200 Facebook friends, most of whom were objectivists. Should I, uh, kind of shovel them over to your camp? And he said, would you? <laughs> <laughs> so, so you guys are all committed. <laughs> We're all, we're all committed. Well, I mean, I, you know, I volunteered. I signed up to be a volunteer early on. I've, you know, I had one of the people from their campaign call me the other day and I was telling them, hey, look, I don't have any more money. I've given them a little bit of money, but I just don't have the money. I can't afford to donate more. But I tell them all the publicity that I give them. I say, look, I put this tweet out there during the debate. It got retweeted 184 times. Okay, so imagine the yeah. audience that this one tweet of mine got. I think I'm giving him tremendous publicity between that and the show. I've been talking to him up since 2013, since he was on the floor of that Senate. So I, I'm doing I'm doing a lot for his campaign. But yeah, at some point, right. I do hope to have the opportunity. We'll see if I'll get to to talk yeah, with him. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, I talked to Takers. I, I tried mm -hmm. to talk to Carly Fiorina. I mm -hmm. saw her speech. She looked she looked great. But uh, like I said, these all these people are mixed bags. I, Carly emphasized our right, our rights come from Almighty God. Mm. Even you know, emphasize Almighty God. You know, I and uh, her, as, when she talks about capitalism, it's always about the new business, uh, or I'm sorry, small business. You know, right. the, uh, the mechanic shop or the flower store and everything. I and she did run a, that Hewlett Packard for a while, but she didn't really uh, grasp the overall value of capitalism as such, at least from what I heard. Okay. Okay. So uh, I tried to uh, get a hold of her, but she was mobbed and she uh, she buggered off before I could uh, talk to her. But it looks like these people are going to be doing events all around the country. So I'd advise anybody to. Uh, you can get in there, ask him questions, give him a book or something. 
Wouldn't that next be good? time, next time I have the opportunity, I definitely want to do that. And at some point, I I plan on crossing paths. I think it's going to be very cool. So congratulations, yeah. John. That's fun. That's awesome. You may yeah, so, have met yeah. and spoken to the next president of the United States. That would be very cool if you had. Yeah, maybe, maybe. And Ben Carson was there. He's a good guy. I'd vote for him mm-hmm. any day over Bush or Christie. Sure. Or Kasich. You know, yeah. he's, he's an honest guy. He's smart. And I think that's the main thing. Uh, you can't be a habitual liar like a Clinton. I mean, that's a crime family right there. Yeah, not and be so a like, good neurosurgeon, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. There's, a, there's a certain amount of honesty and integrity and mental fortitude that comes with being an effective neurosurgeon. And I, that's, I yeah, think, a definite. Yeah, he, had a, he, had a, yeah, he went into his, his childhood, which was unbelievably tough. I mean, his mm. mother working around the clock. He, they had nothing, no luxuries at all. Like they could, if they went to a carnival, they couldn't go on any rides. They couldn't have any cotton candy or anything like that. But, uh, you know, when he could get books, he'd read all the books he could. And uh, now we started reading rooms in inner cities for uh, for poor kids. And he's, he's definitely anti-welfare. His mother knew welfare just gets you stuck. She saw this sure. all the time. Sure. So she worked her butt off to avoid the welfare trap. So that's part of the thinking, too. That, so that, sounds, that sounds very promising as well. It's going to be interesting yeah. to see what happens in the, in the next several debates because Carson's been doing well. Fiorina's been doing well in the polls and, and uh, Cruz as well. Who knows what's going to happen with our wild card Trump. But, um, John, I'm going to go ahead and grab one more call okay. and then get on to the last couple stories I want to do. But thanks okay. for calling. And, and again, congratulations. Okay. That's fun. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye. Talk to you next time. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Hi, this is Richie from Australia. How are you doing? I'm doing fine from Australia. Thank you for calling. What time is it there? Oh, it's only 2 p.m. It's all good. <laughs> nice. Okay, okay good. So, so your your brain is better than mine at this point. So <laughs> what can I do for you, Richard? Well, my main concern is this Donald Trump guy. As far as I'm aware, in the uh, debates, he threatened to run as an independent if we didn't back him as the GOP right. candidate. So, um, you know, if he does this, and if he's got 23% of the, uh, the current vote for the GOP, then... Um, where does that leave us if he does that? I mean, he's got the finances to run an independent campaign. I mean, oh, it yes. costs money, and he doesn't care. <laughs> yeah, I, I you know, it's it's. I think it's too early to say exactly how that's going to go, but that's really got to be a concern. I was speaking to one person the other day, uh, someone who's in the military, and, and uh, asked me the question, um, if you had to do, like, Trump with Cruz would you vote for that ticket? I was like, well, I mean, I, I guess on the hope that Cruz could talk Trump into better ideas, but oh my gosh, is that what it's really going to come to? That in order to get somebody decent, we're going to have to go through Trump? Maybe, maybe not. I got, I get Trump spam. Some people who I don't even know, they're not even friends of mine on Facebook or whatever, somehow got my email address and started emailing me about Trump. Okay, I it's it's a very strange phenomenon that I don't understand. Well, we're Ted Cruz and a uh, Trump candidate. Well, hey, it's better than uh, not winning the next election and getting Hillary, right? 
I guess that would be. I mean, that's that's the, you know, <laughs> if those were my choices, then yes, I guess that would be fine. <laughs> Certainly better than if it was going to be Sanders, so. <sighs> I will just be back to listening to you now. Okay, well, thanks for calling in. And you said it's it's Richard. We welcome all Aussies. Um, and we may have to bail, you know, if, if Sanders gets elected, we may be coming to visit, all of us. Oh, no, no, you don't want Australia. Um, I, I don't know where we'll run to, but if you figure that out, let me know. I'll come along as well. <laughs> okay, okay, we'll all have to scheme on it. We'll have to figure it out. But, of course, the NSA is going to be listening, so we'll have to be careful with that. Thanks very much. Now, let me, I've got to get to this story about um, what's going on in the colleges because I want to return to this theme. Uh, one thing that you need to watch, this is your homework, is you have to watch the video that is under the link at my blog. There's a link at my blog. It says why we need to talk about white feminism. And I thought it was out of the onion, but it's actually not out of the onion. There are women now who are saying that being a feminist is not enough because if you are a white feminist, then you actually don't understand the plight of colored women or other minority women. And so therefore being a feminist isn't enough. You might be a white feminist and therefore be offending people and not understanding people in an offensive way, which leads right into this Atlantic article that I was mentioning earlier. I've got this huge stack of paper because when you print it out, it's something like 25 pages or so, but it's called the coddling of the American mind. And the article is talking about this phenomenon on college campuses now, a phenomenon that is driven largely by the students themselves, but it seems that the universities are going along with them, and there are elements of federal law that reinforce this. But you've heard these terms, it's called microaggressions or trigger warnings, and these terms are being thrown around on college campuses in order to get both students and faculty to, in effect, censor themselves. So what is a microaggression? They define it here in the article. It's a small action or word choices that seems on its face to have no malicious intent, but that are thought of as a kind of violence nonetheless. Trigger warnings. Trigger warnings are alerts that professors are expected to issue if something in a course might cause a strong emotional response. And the whole idea of going out there and making people aware of so-called microaggressions or trigger warnings is that you want to shelter the students from having any sort of emotional pain or trauma in reaction to what they either hear from their fellow students or from their professors in class or what they might read in an assigned work. There's all kinds of examples of what the climate on campus is like right now throughout this article. Here's just one in April at Brandeis University. The Asian American Student Association sought to raise awareness of microaggressions against Asians through an installation on the steps of an academic hall. The installation gave examples of microaggressions, such as, quote, Are you aren't you supposed to be good at math? And, quote, I'm colorblind, I don't see race, end quote. So if you say you don't see race and you're colorblind, that that is a microaggression, apparently. 
But a backlash arose against this installation among other Asian American students who felt that the display itself was a microaggression. So the association removed the installation and the president wrote an email to the entire student body apologizing to anyone who was, quote, triggered or hurt by the content of the microaggressions. Um, in University of California, if you're a professor there, you have been told that there is a list of offensive statements that you should avoid. One of them is, America is the land of opportunity. Another is to say, quote, I believe the most qualified person should get the job, right? So the whole idea is you want to have campuses be, quote, safe spaces, and you want to punish anyone who interferes with the aim of creating safe spaces on campus for everybody. You shouldn't have to confront things that make you feel emotionally uncomfortable or ideas with which you strongly disagree or find offensive. Uh, but what comes out of this, something that the authors of this Atlantic article call vindictive protectiveness. Everyone is supposed to now think twice before speaking up, lest they face charges of insensitivity, aggression, or worse. And what does all this do, this protectiveness? It conveys to students the sense that words themselves can be forms of violence. Where have you heard that before? You've heard that in the reaction to, for example, the Muhammad cartoon contest, right? All you do is you draw Muhammad and that itself is supposed to warrant a violent response from jihadists. Um, but, you know, the whole tradition of having Socratic dialogue and being at a university is, you know, challenging your beliefs, challenging the beliefs that you have, the beliefs of others that your parents told you. And this questioning of beliefs and questioning of ideas through Socratic method is, according to the authors here, they say, look, it, it sometimes leads to discomfort and even to anger, but this is all on the way to understanding. This is what education is supposed to be about. But what does this protectiveness do to the kids? The authors then start to describe how it makes these students likely to engage in patterns of thought that they say are, quote, surprisingly similar to those long identified by cognitive behavioral therapists as causes of depression and anxiety. In effect, students are being taught to think pathologically. Um, now, let me get to some of the actual statistics and things here. Um, okay, here, yeah, give me, I'll give you some statistics here. The American College Health Association said that, and this is in 2014, 54% of college students surveyed said that they had, quote, felt overwhelming anxiety, end quote, in the past 12 months. And this was up from 49% in the same survey just five years earlier. So imagine going up basically 5%, the number of students that appear, you know, that have more overwhelming anxiety. They have more emotional crises. Many of them seem fragile, et cetera. Um, now, cognitive behavioral therapy teaches people, you know, in order to get over things like anxiety, teaches them good critical thinking skills, 
what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to be able to look at some sort of idea or emotion or whatever you have and think of it critically and decide, you know, think of it apart from you and decide whether it's good or bad and be able to set it aside. And instead, what they're doing is they're taking the emotions of these students as an unquestioned primary. If they're going to be traumatized, um, then you're just supposed to accept that and you're supposed to, you know, uh, change your behavior accordingly. Emotional reasoning, they say, dominates many campus debates and discussions today. Um, you know, they said when they wanted to make these safe spaces, the sentiment underpinning the goal was laudable, but it produces absurd results. Um, here's one really egregious example. Somebody was reading a book that was entitled Notre Dame versus the Klan. The book actually honored the student opposition to the Ku Klux Klan. However, there was a picture of the Klan on the cover and it offended one of the student's co-workers. And so that was enough for a guilty finding by the university's affirmative action office. This is the type of ridiculousness that's out there. Um, now, um, right now in academia, there's this issue you can't, you cannot quote, blame the victim. So it's unacceptable to question the reasonableness of someone's emotional state now. And what Jonathan Roche, an editor at this magazine, The Atlantic, he calls it the offendedness sweepstakes. Opposing parties use claims of offense as cudgels. And they say in the process, the bar for what we consider unacceptable speech is lowered further and further. The federal government has also redefined sexual harassment to just say any verbal conduct that is unwelcome. So that has contributed to this horrible uh, environment of censorship but what they go on to talk about is they talk about um, certain types of misguided thinking of false messages that our brains give us that are in effect being programmed into these students as a result of this effort to create a safe space on campus so for example burns who is the author of a well-known book on happiness called fortune telling as anticipating that things will turn out badly well what do you think a trigger warning is it's going to teach kids basically that it's okay to engage in this negative fortune telling uh, there people are not going to be able to be exposed to the things that traumatize them and they're not going to be able to learn to live through them etc so i am running out of time here but i urge you to go read the article um, people are being and their minds are suffering. Um, I have a couple other videos on don'tletitgo.com. Go check it out. In, uh, enjoy the political ad and particularly enjoy the uh, Buy a Shotgun song by the Flying Robots. I think you're going to have some fun with that. But continue the discussion over there or on social media. And I look forward to talking to all of you next week. Have a good evening and weekend. Sorry for that noise. Bye. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.